I think I'm pretty fortunate that it all came, you know, turning 40, COVID, having a newfound appreciation of my family and then having a sharper view of like what I want to do. And going from a previous job, not that it was a bad job. I mean, it was like, it was the dream job that any ex-professional wants, right? You want to get into working with a big sports brand and doing stuff around the world and handling major contracts. COVID hit and I'm like, that's not important to me anymore. Mm. Like at the end of the day, this group that I'm helping to make millions over here versus me going out in the backyard and running around with the boys, like what's the higher value? It's going out in the backyard with the boys. Mm. It's unfortunate that it took a global pandemic to kind of sharpen that viewpoint, but it did. Wow. This is Saga, a podcast about the people using their powers to shape thesis. My name is Octavius A. Newman, and we're speaking to Scott Thompson, better known as 1T, mentor, coach, and chief people officer here at Thesis. This is Scott's Saga. Scott, thank you for being here with me. You got the lavender out? I do. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. How's your day so far? It's good. Sun's out. Mm -hmm. Get to be around good people. So yeah, it's a good day so far. Yeah. So what we're going to do between us and for the people, Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about your story. I want to know about where you're at now, where you came from, where you see yourself going, all that good stuff. So let's start out with your title at Thesis is? Title now is Chief People Officer. Okay. Now for young Octavius, let's say from Mm -hmm. the past, who's up and coming, who's like, what what does that mean in like like layman's terms? (laughs) What what does that mean? Yeah, it's... um... It's really about studying, being aware of what, of what people need and what mm-hmm. groups of people need. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the day, I went to school to originally be a psychologist. Okay. Um, and I, the original goal was to help people on a one-to-one basis, right? Help them mm-hmm. through their, their troubles, what's going on in their life, and help be that kind of guide. You know, not having all the answers, but just try to help them through it. Um, that kind of pivoted into sociology and understanding groups of people. So I've always had this like fascination with people, what they need, and then the group dynamic and how that mm-hmm. forms an idea or direction. So are you, are you thesis as therapist in a sense? <laughs> like, is, is this the therapist? <laughs> yeah, some, some days this is, this is the session. So if okay. you ask me like what a typical day is, there's at least four or five of these interactions. Okay. One-on-ones with folks, whether it's... Um, asking how do I get to that next level in leadership mm-hmm. to I'm having difficulty talking to a coworker. How do I get my thoughts across? Mm-hmm. Or I've got issues in my personal life and it's bleeding into my professional life. Wow. So it is really kind of like a bit of a therapist, school counselor. Kind With of. a little bit of business on the back end of it. So at the end okay. of the day, there's got to be an outcome, right? Like how are we a better partner for our clients? How are we a better partner in terms of Expand our capabilities. So there's always that business tie-in uh, from a, a CPO standpoint. What's CPO? Chief People Officer. Okay, got it. All right, now it's all coming together. Okay, so that's what you do now. Mm-hmm. You're here in Portland, right? This is where you live? This is where I live. How's Portland for you? Portland has been the best thing in my life. Actually, I take that back. Hold on. I'm the Best thing in your life? Best thing in my life, because this is where I met my wife. Ah, okay. And Context. Both, and both my boys are born here. Ah. 
So in, ter- in terms okay. of like where I've got, like where I was and where I'm at now, I wouldn't have had all of that if I didn't move to Portland, mm-hmm. meet her, and she has been the absolute like balance in terms of how I operate to then have mm-hmm. my two boys and I've I've reached the dream that I never thought I'd reach at the age I'm at. Mm. Okay, I want to get into that. Like the whole idea of a dream come true. I would like to, that, that, that's a perfect segue into going back in time. Okay. So we heard a little bit about where you are right now, what you do right now, what your day is like. Let's go back in time a bit. Mm-hmm. Where are you from? I'm from all over the place. Okay. Um, so originally born in uh, Manhattan from uh, immigrant parents, so from England and St. Vincent. Okay. Uh, grew up in Brooklyn. Moved to New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So still toddler phase, grew up in New Jersey. What part of Jersey? Small town called Hackettstown. Okay. Warren County. Okay. Uh, was there until about 14. Then I moved to Orange County, California. That's a big move. That was a massive move. The whole family moves the to... The whole family moved. And how old did you say you were? I was 15 coming to Okay, so SoCal. before we get to California, tell me a little bit about... You said, where, where in New York? So, Manhattan to Brooklyn. Manhattan to Brooklyn, okay. So, most of, so my grandma owned a, a building in Brooklyn. My aunt lived in Brooklyn. Oh, so you, your people owned property. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. But my dad didn't want us to be raised in Brooklyn. Why is that? For all the stereotypical reasons of growing okay. up in the city. He was mm-hmm. like, I'm not having my kids be another stereotype on the news or whatever it is, I'm mm-hmm. going gonna, I'm gonna to give them a different opportunity. Mm-hmm. So my dad was very big on exposing my, me and my sister to every single thing possible. So growing up, it was soccer, Boy Scouts, church choir, um, youth group, had to have straight A's in school. Like I was in everything, chess club. Had to have. Yeah, that was the expectation. Okay. Um, but we grew up in this small 10,000 person town, three mm-hmm. black people in the entire you know, town. Only three? Mm-hmm. And we would drive every weekend into the city to see my grandma. Okay. So every weekend, it's kind of, well, first off, we don't fit into the American mold. I got, you know, I got an English dad who doesn't know anything about America-ish, mm-hmm. you know? And then mm-hmm. my moms could care less. Don't hang out with anybody in the, in the town and then go into Brooklyn every weekend to see my grandma. Mm-hmm. So his I was mother, never, never in like any one world. His mother or your mother's mother? My dad's mother. Okay. Wow. Hmm. No one's ever asked me that before. So, well, I'm just, I'm trying to, that's, I'm, I'm a, trying to, I'm, I'm trying to, the theater of the mind. <laughs> I need to have all of my characters set yeah. up properly. So my mom's side of the family was still in England. Okay. So I never, I only saw them three times coming up. Okay. But my dad's side would make trips over. So. Two of my dad's older sisters still lived in England. The younger sister was in the States. Mm. So I'm just curious. Did, did having, your, having your parents be from all these different places, how did that play a role in what, it's like, what it was like for you to be <laughs> in New Jersey, Brooklyn? You know what I mean? I've, I've always been someone that can fit in everywhere but not fit in anywhere. Mm. Tell me more about that. In the sense of, I have an awareness of the world around me. So some kids growing up never left Jersey. 
mm-hmm. they could care less. You know, like going to New York was like a big deal for them. Mm-hmm. Versus for me, that was like every other week. Right. But yet, I would go into those places, and even going over overseas, and fit in because I'm family. That's who we are. Like we're just we were, we were the family that moved to the suburbs. Okay. But then not really fitting in because we weren't there day in and day out. Hmm. So there's always been some element of just like slightly being outplaced or out of place. Hmm. So who's who's your friend friend group at this time? Ooh, that's a good question. Because when you talk about fitting in, mm-hmm. not fitting in, and if you're a youngin, you know what I mean. Like a large part of that is like, I know for me it's like, I have people that I'm connected with, but sometimes they're just the people that the parents are friends, so the kids kind of, yeah. you know what I mean. So we had that. When I was younger, so my parents did, you know, Jack and Jill. What's that? It's um, it's a black, uh, basically all things black culture, but it's for parents that have families. It's um, it's called Jack and Jill, but essentially it's it's a way to network and bond with people who have like-minded kids or okay. same like profession. Okay. So we did that, but I never really like, really got into it because it was always meeting up with other families that didn't weren't in my my town. Hmm. So when you talk about like the parent friend groups, yeah, that happened a lot. But then my friends group was always in sports. Okay. So the teams that I was playing on, that was always like my community, but it was always done through the lens of like you had a tryout and then now is your friend group or you had to like ah, you know, like a cohort. But it okay. wasn't like me building those relationships with those kids running around the neighborhood or doing something together that then bonded us. Mm-hmm. To then be friends. Okay. So sports coming at an early age then? Early age. In Brooklyn, New Jersey. New sports have, sports has always been like the way that I've connected with folks. Okay. Because it, it doesn't, I have a tough time opening up to people. Hmm. But sports allowed me to do it in a way that like, this is your, this is your tribe of people. Uh. In the locker room or in the, not, I mean, on the bench at that time. Like a, like a, like a, these are my soldiers, my teammates, my, yeah. we're going to mm-hmm. execute, go to war, do this together. So there's some. And then through every game, every win, every loss, like you just build on more and more onto that. But the, at the foundation was always that mm. we're together for, as a team. So is the friend group changing a lot or is it like people are coming and moving along with you? It does. I, I have to admit, I don't stay close with people. Like after I, it's like when I moved from, from Jersey to Cali, I tried to stay close, but it didn't really happen. Like I flew back maybe once or twice, mm-hmm. but we kind of all like grew our separate ways. Wow. And even when I graduated from high school and went to college, I didn't stay super tight with like, there's probably three or four guys I hung out with all the time. We didn't stay tight because I was going to school to play soccer and they were, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't go to college. They just went, one went into the Navy, one got a job straight out of high school. And we kind of drifted apart. Hmm. Having friends when you're young is good, weird, and hard all at the same time. It's funny, though. COVID, we actually started talking again because of COVID. Oh, really? Yeah. So we okay. kind of synced back up again, just doing FaceTime calls. And one of the, one of the guys, like his, his kids are older. I mean, they're all 16 and 18. So there was already a gap. Like he had kids young, mine are a little bit. I had kids older. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but we've we found a way to connect again because of like recognizing that life's too short, that work, business, like all these things that we say that, that we think we need to do. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, all we need is community and our family and a roof over our head and some food. Mm. Like existing is is what we like. That's the function of what we all do. Mm. And so reaching it back out to people that give you that sense of community. I don't know. Some, somewhere in COVID, I kind of had like an aha moment. Like that's the priority more so than anything else. Community. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think we all kind of picked up on that a little bit of like, what really is all this? Mm-hmm. If you take away all this stuff, if you're like locked down and you can only do X, Y, or Z, then what? Yeah. A lot of things come into focus more clearly in a situation like that. I think I'm pretty fortunate that it all came you know, turning 40, COVID, having a newfound appreciation of my family and then having a sharper view of like what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And going from a previous job, not that it was a bad job, I mean, it was like, it was the dream job that any ex-professional wants, right? You want to get into working with a big sports brand and doing stuff around the world and handling major contracts. COVID hit and I'm like, that's not important to me anymore. Mm. Like at the end of the day, this group that I'm helping to make millions over here versus me going out in the backyard and running around with the boys, like what's the higher value? It's going out in the backyard with the boys. Mm. It's unfortunate that it took a global pandemic to kind of sharpen that viewpoint, but it did. Wow. That's deep. Scott, you deep. You come on here with the lavender shirt. You know, it's, you know what I mean? It's camouflage. And, get, <laughs> and the depth comes from the depths. Come all of this deepness. Okay, so it's cool to make that connection from the youth to now. Yeah. But you don't always stay in the East Coast. You said mm-hmm. you moved to Cali. 15, 14? 15. Okay. Uh, and that was a hard move. Well, first of all, no, is why you moved. And two, I want the whole story. When you say something's hard, I'm just Ooh. like, you know, unearth. Uh, Tell me I mean, more how many, about how that. How many layers deep you want to go? Because this is... I mean, we got like an hour. Okay. So, you know what I mean? Let's try to just scale so, <laughs> to make the best of it. <laughs> you know? So my, my dad was an aeronautical engineer. Wait a minute. You hear that word in movies. It's like, he's an aeronautical engineer. And they're like, oh, no. So what does that mean? What was what, what, dad so actually he, doing? So he went to school with the dream passion of like handling machines, engineering, but in the essence of like aeronautics. Okay. What he ended up doing was designing large-scale production lasers. So, like, lasers that cut welding in benches, lasers okay. that cut uh, the piping on a chair. Okay. His company in Jersey did that. The company he worked for or the company he, he owned? The company he worked for. Okay. And so he was good at it. There was a, a Japanese company on the West Coast that recognized his skills and we're like, hey, why don't you come out to the West Coast and work for us mm-hmm. and head up our West Coast American division. And uh, the opportunity was too great. The quality of life to go from small town Jersey to now, you know, up and coming Orange County in a, in a pretty relatively new area um, was, was too big to pass up. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize this at the time that my parents were dealing with a lot of money issues and, and like going to bat at each other over mm-hmm. money. And this move, selling the house, was a way to like alleviate that. 
Mm. But I didn't know all that piece. Found that out later. Okay. So we make the move, basically, better job. Um, for me, it was pretty drastic because I was I had a tough time making friends as a kid. I had a lot of, like, racist issues in the town growing up. Mm-hmm. I just figured out my place on the sports side of things. I just made varsity as a freshman, okay. which is a big deal back then, you know. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and then we're like, hey, we're moving. I think I just got a girlfriend too that year too. So it's like oh, all man. the things. Oh, hold on. You know, Scott, not not the girl. So you had to leave the love of your life. Uh, I, wouldn't your go whole I wouldn't, sports I wouldn't career. go that far. I right. say the, okay, you know, hyperbolic language. Forgive me. The homecoming, like right, <laughs> right, 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 right. That part in the movie. Mm-hmm. But but this is a big deal. You're 15 yeah. years old, yeah. and it's like pack it up. How did you feel? Oh, I hated everybody. Really? Like literally, was mad at everybody. Okay. Like nobody could do right by me. I was mm. like, this is the worst move in the impossible. I think we did a trip to Disneyland as like a, hey, this is gonna be a good experience. We'll take you out to Disneyland. I'm like, where like it's hot as hell out here. It's middle of December. You know, I'm sweating my ass off. I'm hanging out in, you know, the smog area, hanging out with Disney that I don't wanna be around Disney. I don't wanna be around these little kids. Right. So I'm just like pissed off. I'm pissed off for a good like six months. Mm-hmm. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Six months? The transition. So we, when we moved out, the house wasn't ready. Oh, wow. That we're moving into. So we were staying in like this um, apartment complex. I didn't have any friends. There's nobody in the school that lived in that complex. And there might be like one or two people. Mm-hmm. So no school, no sports, middle of summer. I'm just hanging out with my mom, my sister. My dad's going to work. And I don't know where to go, what to do. And I'm just pissed off. Can't play soccer. Mm. Um I think my parents put me in all like honors classes, AP classes. And I'm they like, put you in the classes? It was recommended by the counselor at the time. Because you okay. know, they do the visit. Like, hey, you should go to these honors classes. I'm mm-hmm. like, no. And they're like, yeah, you're, you're going into those classes. Mm. So I'm pissed, off, I'm pissed off just everything. Everything that I want to do, can't do. Um, and I start off and like the culture shock of Southern California compared to the East Coast is pretty big. Mm like the bubbles that you're in in little pockets and then not knowing who to talk to or what to talk about. And it was just so different and foreign to me that I was just, and I'll admit, like I, I did not open up myself to be like, look at the opportunity of that move. Yeah. But you're 15. I was 15. I was 15 and stupid. What, did like, you, what, do, you, what do you know when you're 15? Yeah, I was focused on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, I say six months because it was like three months of summer and then probably three months of my sophomore year that took me like figure out and navigate like who's who. And fortunately a guy that I went to high school with, he's like, Hey, you want to come out and uh, come out and try, you know, we got a soccer team down the road, come out and try this club. Do you know you played soccer? They knew. And I started to go out to like pick up, cause it's like the time period we started doing like the, okay. the captain's practices, you know, you kind of, okay. and here I am rolling out looking all like a scrub and, were you good? I, I was good. Okay. So you left that part out. But so that's it, the part in the movie where... But it, but it was like, you don't know you're good. Oh. You know, it's like I, like, I knew I was good, but not like good enough where someone's like, hey, you should come out and like check out our team. Okay. And so that, once I finally got into a, a club team and started playing and then made some like friends, that's when I found my rhythm. Hmm. And then I started to realize that this move was probably the best move 
for my entire life because I got I got scouted at a high school game. So the UCLA head coach was out watching high school tournament soccer games and he had seen me at a high school game and that's when the whole interest and peak of like, oh, you could actually do this in college came up. Mm. But before that, it was just like, you just playing soccer because you're good at it. And right. It was like the other extracurricular activity on top of everything else. So at that time, mm-hmm. what did you want? Did you have like, I'm moving in this direction. I'm, no. I'm going after this. Nope. So it was kind of directionless. Or how would you describe it? I wanted to do what I wanted to do. But I didn't have like a, a an end goal in all this. Okay. Like I was good in school because I was told to be good in school. I was good at soccer because I just enjoy playing it. Mm-hmm. But I could I couldn't tell you like this was the direction I wanted to go, and I didn't realize it until I got a little bit older that everything that I was trying to do was trying to emulate like how my dad kind of showed up for my sister mm. for the family. Did so you know that? I, I, I figured it out later in life, and I told him that too. I was like, hey, like, like my bad. Like, all the shit that I gave you back in the day, things that I said that I would do differently or where you were wrong in this, and I do that. I was like, no, that's, that's all bullshit. You were right. Hmm. Like, even, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, like, even, like, going through, like, my parents getting divorced because that was a, a really tough time, um, still had to come back and be like, hey, you were right because – he was always trying to do his best to provide for all of us and give us all the things that he didn't have. Mm. And he does that from like a immediate family, but then also his siblings and everybody else. Like he's always trying to make sure that he's that rock for everybody else. Mm. And so there's a level of like looking up to that, trying to like create the family that I have now. So like when I, when I say like, hey, I got this, home, I got an amazing wife, I got two amazing kids, like, to me, like, that is, like, I've, I've made it. Mm. I'm, I'm not trying to chase after anything else, because there's something else for me to, like, I don't need anything else. Right. Now, all it is is make sure that they have what they need to then make sure that their kids and their family have what they need. Wow. Taking care of the, setting up for the kids' kids. Mm-hmm. That sounds like that's the trajectory. Is that my hearing it right? If, if I could build a compound tomorrow <laughs> and have all of us, you know, around some communal watering hole or communal, like, mm-hmm. space, that would be the next phase of this. Hmm. Where I know that I can keep my eye on things, but people can still, okay. like, go do their own thing. Right. But they know they can always come back to, like, that as their foundation. Hmm. But at this time in the story, when oh, you're yeah. how old? 15, 16. 15, I was just, 16. Just a dumb... Trying to hook up and and just play soccer. That was it. That's like right. literally the two focuses of my life. So, but someone notices you. Yeah, and got they're yeah. like, "Yo, you're nice. Come, come ball with us." So that was once the UCLA head coach, um, a guy named Ziggy Schmidt. Once he scouted me, that's when everything else started to open up. Where I was like, Notre Dame reached out, Santa Clara reaches out, different schools start to you know be like, "Hey, why don't you come out and." come on a recruiting trip or hey, what do you think about playing? But I, I really didn't think I was good enough until junior, senior year of high school. Because at that time, UCLA was, that entire roster of players was literally on the Olympic team. Oh. Like the entire, like half the team had just gone to the Pan American Games the year before. 
other half of the team is literally on the Olympic team. Well, that's clarifying. Yeah. So what does that, what does that do for you in your head, in your mindset? Like I'm assuming what it does, but like, but I've, I've, I've never looked at myself as, as someone that's like better than somebody else or too good to, like I've literally, my whole style of play and kind of how I show up for other people is just trying to work as hard as I possibly can mm. or outwork other people. Okay. Because I was never, I was never the most technical, the most skilled person, but I was always hungrier, faster, worked harder, jumped higher. Mm -hmm. So even going into college, like, Going into school, it was um, it was like, hey, you're a freshman, you're probably not going to play, or hey, we got all these upperclassmen. I got guys that are going, that are leaving school early to go play professionally. Mm -hmm. You're probably not going to play. And I'm like, all right, cool. It's like, I remember I told him he, the coach came to our house, and he had this. We had a dinner, and he was telling me the story, and he's telling me, hey, you may not play until your sophomore, senior, junior mm -hmm. year. And I was just like, no, I'm, I'm going to play. Like, You're like, like, watch like, this. like, like humbly, yeah. But I'm uh -huh. going to, I'm going to get on the field, and and I did. Yeah. Now I was a defender at the time, so it's not like I was like I wasn't getting a ton of minutes, but I was finding ways onto the field. So it was like end of the game, we need someone just to run and put pressure on somebody. All right, we'll sub you in. Or so and so got hurt, and I got got 15 minutes here, 10 minutes there, and it just started building up on that. Whereas. 10 minutes here and then make a crucial tackle to save a goal. Or mm -hmm. I think I had five or six goals my freshman year. Maybe, no, maybe eight. But like freshman defenders don't score goals in games. Right. So I'm finding ways to get on the field even up until I think I had, um, we were in the final four. I got subbed in, we were losing. And I got the game tying goal to go into like quadruple overtime. Wow. Um, but like that doesn't typically happen for freshmen, mm -hmm. especially freshmen at, at UCLA, right? So it's like that's always been like my ethos now I show up. And and that's kind of what every year of college was was a little bit of that, but getting better and learning until we won the championship in my senior year. Wow. So that's a that's a that's a large change from you probably won't play yeah. to like, so what's the motivating thing internally that goes, well, I hear what you're saying, but I'll be, it kind of feels like I'll be the judge. Yeah. When I was younger, I was very competitive. Like I was, I was the kid that would cry if we lost a game. Okay. Um, I needed to score all the goals. I needed to be on the field. And if I wasn't scoring, I was just getting somebody else set up. Mm -hmm. and all through high school, all through college, still super competitive. Like I was not competitive where like I was cheating to win, but like just up until that edge. <laughs> okay. Like, right. Yeah. Not cheating, but yeah. depending upon how you look at it, someone could see it differently. Yeah. Okay. So that was the mindset when I was a kid. Like I, I had to win – if I wasn't winning, I had to be on the winning team or mm -hmm. I had to be at a minimum, like the number two. Yeah. So even just like, I remember in, in middle school, I was like ranked who were the best athletes. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm number two right now, but I'm going to be number one. 
or like when I ran track, it was always, I hated being the one in front. I like to be the one to chase and then eventually win. Okay. That's the, okay. So it sounds like there's a story in your head of who you are. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. it's one thing to, to smoke everybody. It's another thing to have the cinematic moment, the slow-mo thing when you catch the guy and you defeat them at the end. So there, there's a couple track meets. You have to go in the archives and find the video. But there's oh, there's a video. There's a couple old school. Like, well, we got to get that. We got to get the documentation. <laughs> we got to get the evidence. But there's um, definitely track meets where we'd either be, so four by four relay, you know, one time around the track. Mm-hmm. We'd be like losing and I'd be the anchor leg. Mm-hmm. And I would most times like catch that whoever's in first or if I'm like down by two, down by three, I'd, I'd find a way to win. Hmm. Is that an identity? That's, yeah, piece? definitely my identity. Of like, I'll, I'll carry us, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it in your own way. Yeah, like when I, when I played here at, with the Timbers, it was the same thing. Like you could count on me that I was going to make the extra run or the extra movement or either just get back on defense or get up to join the attack. Like I would do that. Hmm. Because it was important for me to like, one, I enjoyed doing it, but two, it was important for me to like cover for teammates hmm. to make sure that they knew that I would, I would make, do that extra work for them. Why is, was that important to you? I mean, that's just how I, how I wanted to, how I enjoyed playing, but what I also expect from other people. Uh-huh. So if there's, there's gonna be times where I'm not at my best, but that whole team, family, community mentality, like somebody else is gonna help cover that. Hmm. And did you learn this in college? Or did you learn this from, where'd you learn that? Oh. Honestly, I think I just picked it, I've, I finally put it all together now. Oh, just now? I mean, the whole we community. We just figured it out just now? But the combination <laughs> of like how, how I rolled up individually, because I mean, I was, I was a selfish kid, I was selfish until, God, past my 20s. Hmm. Like when I look back at how much my parents sacrificed for me, or sacrificed for me and my sister, or some of the shit that they put up with. Or like my mom just uh, retired. She moved okay. up here, lives with us. Okay. And she brought up all her stuff. And we're going through the archives and all of her, the, the gear. She has a trunk of newspaper clippings, articles, letters, recommendations from coaches all saved from stuff that she had put together as part of like my profile that went out to schools wow. because back then there was no you know no there wasn't a portal there was no website right. there was you literally yeah. had to like hustle and be like hey here's my resume as a player mm-hmm. she did all that we take moms for granted sometimes oh, all the time like whatever mom she's like if you only knew mm-hmm. young man what I've had to put up with, mm-hmm. what I have done for you. Yeah. Wow. That, that must have been, so you didn't know she had that. I knew she did it. I didn't fully appreciate it until, right. until older. And now I haven't gone through it with my kids. So there's definitely a level mm. of like, I have my own kids now that I recognize what they did, what they sacrificed to make sure I had what I needed to be successful. Yeah. We talked a lot about what happened in, in the early years. We talked about mm-hmm. high school, but we jumped to college. Like, so you got recruited yeah. to, to play soccer in college. Yeah. 
and you won a championship as you playing for US, UCLA. Yeah. Is that a big deal to you? It's, if I had to rank the top moments of my life between meeting my wife, having my kids, going to UCLA would be in the top five. Okay. Like that single-handedly was probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. Really? Yeah. And it, it, can you give me like the, the number one reason? As to it's, why, or like it's, a it's sentence. All of it. It's being on. There's like no, royalty. There's well. There's the history of UCLA and okay. being a part of the number of championships. So I think we're at 125 now, 27. Wow. So UCLA number one uh, national championships in the country. Mm-hmm. The campus itself being in Westwood and like the, when you drive in and no campus beats that. The people. The level of play, like all of it, mm. like being able to figure out myself as an adult or come into like teenage years into an adult yeah. Yeah. in that environment, it was, so it was amazing. So at this time, are you like, I'm gonna play professional soccer? No. I'm gonna. What, what, no. I'm always interested in the story of like where you think you're going at a certain <laughs> point versus what actually happened. So in your mind, you know, freshman to senior. Where's your trajectory in your head? Where are you going? And honestly, I was taking one year at a time. Okay. Just being like, I'm just happy to be here. Okay. I did not expect to play professionally until I was on the cusp of the Olympic team. Mm. So the way it works, you, you have your, you know, you're playing in college or some guys are playing professionally. You get invited into the training pool. And then from that pool of players, they select players to go to, the, to Olympic training or Olympic qualifying. Okay. So I was in that pool of, of training. So I'm, I get, this was the tail end of my junior year going to senior year. Um, so I'm in this pool. I'm playing with some of the you know, top players in the country. Leave the pool. Go. Uh, God, was it? We won the national championships. That was the fall of 2022. Wait, I actually didn't get 2022? Yeah. Wait, you, what happened though? Sorry. 2002. Okay. I was about to say, do I know what year it is? You say this so confidently, like I'm wrong. 2002. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So we win the national championship in the, in what was it? November of that year. Didn't get to celebrate with the team. Because? I flew out to go to training camp for the Olympic team that night. So I missed out on the celebration. I missed out on the white house. I mean, George Bush was George Bush was in office. I wasn't like too hurt, but mm-hmm. you know, it is like <laughs> <laughs> Okay, all right, got you. But I never got like my photo, the team photo, the right. background, all that. Right. right. So I missed out on that. Um, but I'm going into Olympic training mm-hmm. and didn't have an agent, knew the draft was coming up, but didn't really know I'd get drafted. And okay. all the other guys on the Olympic squad either had an agent or knew where they were going ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And in a roundabout way, like I, I found out that the Galaxy was interested because um, the head coach at the Galaxy at the time was the guy who uh, drafted me or recruited me to UCLA. Okay. Um, and that's kind of how I like figured it out. But there was no like, oh, I won and I'm going to go play pro tomorrow. And that's okay. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to do this. MLS was still Major League Soccer, still pretty young. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was on the trip. We were in Portugal. We were in Portugal at a tournament when I found out I'd gotten drafted. I think it was like a second round draft pick. 
Now, Scott, there's a certain amount of I slipped and fell and became a professional soccer player that I'll accept. But there's another level of it that's like, <laughs> come now, please. You know if you're good. I honestly didn't, you know, I did not know that I would go play pro. I, okay, but did you have aspirations, dreams, goals, hopefully, maybe, I'd like to, anything like that? It's, it's always been like, I would like to go do that, but I, I didn't know for sure. So what was the alternative? Where were you, where were you moving towards if that didn't happen? Honestly, I'd finish up school and probably go be a teacher. Okay. Like that was literally what I was, some type of either education, maybe some social work, I hadn't decided yet. Mm -hmm. um, but I got drafted. Um, I was still in school, but I got, then I got hurt. And it was like, either get hurt, recover, and try to come back, or get hurt, take the entire year off, and then stay in school. So I stayed in school while still technically on the roster for the Galaxy. Okay. And then come back the next year, wasn't fully fit, uh, and I got loaned to up here to the Portland Timbers. And that's where I found out about Portland, packed up all my gear, drove up. And that, I think we had won the league title that year. So that was 2004. Came back to the Galaxy the next year, didn't make the squad. Portland was like, hey, we'll, we have a contract here waiting for you if you want to come play. And okay. that's how I made it up here. And seven years later of playing here in Portland. So soccer brought you up to Portland. Soccer brought me to Portland. Officially. Officially. Okay. And let's just make it clear, professional soccer player. Professional soccer. In case it was not clear. I say, I say that with, with, with an asterisk because it was still a lot of grow in the game. So at the time, while the Los Angeles Galaxy was in Major League Soccer, the Portland Timbers were in the next division beneath it. Okay. So you still had... Um, I think at the time, the owner of the team owned uh, the baseball team that was here and the soccer team. Okay. And the soccer team was second fiddle to the baseball team. Ah. So the priority okay. was making sure the baseball field was already set up. We had, it wasn't a soccer stadium. There was still dirt in the outfield. The turf was hard. It was, it was, it was grimy. It was gritty. Hmm. But the fan base here was probably the best in the country. You know, we were averaging anywhere from eight to 14,000 a game. Oh, okay. Which some MLS teams at the time couldn't average that. Uh, okay. That's what made me fall in love with Portland. It was honestly like the people oh. meeting my wife up here. And it was the like fandom. Yeah. For the team that you played for. The, like you felt love. There was, there was legit love. It, and it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it was authentic. Mm-hmm. Like we would, we would have a game and we would literally go across the street to the bullpen. It was the name of this bar. Okay. The bullpen. And have drinks with some of the fans, some of the Timbers Army folks. Mm -hmm. And it was those interactions that, that where I felt comfortable enough to bring my mom in there to have drinks afterward or have wow. my wife come in. Like there's nowhere else in the country where I could say I could go hang out with like diehard fans five hours earlier and then go tell me their personal life stories and go hang out in a bar afterward. Mm -hmm. Not in LA, not in New York, and that's what made me fall in love with the city. It was, it was the genuine people and how they welcomed me here in a time when coming off being injured, two years of not really playing, um, 
to have a place that I could like feel like is me was kind of like a little bit of an outcast, mm-hmm. but feel welcomed. Yeah. Yeah. Now you talk about falling in love with Portland. Mm-hmm. Professional soccer player. That's what brings you out here. But you've also talked about meeting your wife here. Yeah. So one thing, what brings you to Portland? Another thing, what keeps you in Portland? <laughs> I'm curious about what is keeping you yeah. in Portland. What has kept you in Portland? She has definitely kept me in Portland. Mm-hmm. Is she from Portland? Not from Portland. Um, essentially, the Beaverton, Tigard area. Okay. So suburb of Portland. I understood that reference. I know where Beaverton is. Wow. That's good. Okay. Her, uh, <laughs> she was born in Texas, but grew up here in in Portland or okay. in Beaverton. And mm-hmm. her grandparents were the some of the first people to come to Tigard. Okay. So literally, like ton of farmland, nothing's there. They put a house down. Okay. Her grandfather was the mayor and city council member for a number of years. Your wife's grandfather was the mayor? Of Tigard for a period of time, yeah. Wow. Okay. So All right. She has deep roots here. Her whole side of the family's here. So if my side of the family is all over the world in different countries and mm-hmm. doing our thing... Her whole family is here. Right. I'm like this, like, up-and-coming, no-name soccer player. They welcome me in their home. Um, that summer when I first met Meredith, super hot. They're like, hey, come stay with us. Mm-hmm. I had no AC in my place at the time. Oh, so like, not hey. that she was hot, but it was hot. I mean, she was hot, and yes, okay. it was hot. Combination of hotness. Was, yes. And everything needed to cool off. Yes. Come on in. Yes. I got it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so uh, uh, go ahead. You were saying. Yeah. So when you talk about like what kept me here, it was it was her, mm-hmm. her family. Um, like I don't give them enough credit. Like they have been nothing but welcoming since right. I first met them. And um, yeah, like she she's really every step of my professional journey in soccer afterward, figuring out life. She has helped be that like guide and sage to get through it. Mm. Sage wisdom yeah. is extremely valuable. Someone who's able to speak into your life mm-hmm. about what's going on that can give you perspective. Shout out to that. Yeah, you can't pay. For, well, yeah, you, you you don't have enough money to pay for that. If somebody's going to really give it to you. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, you don't play soccer professionally now. What's your relationship with soccer now? It's a, it's an interesting one. So I'm a, I'm a fan at the professional level, but I'm still a mm-hmm. coach at the youth level. Okay. And so, I still coach my kids. Like I, if I could do one thing, and that was paid for everything else in my life, I'd probably be a coach. Okay. And just coach one team and. That would be like my hobby slash passion that I could do that every single day and be happy doing that. Like coaching and not just coaching like the the tactics and the technical side, but coaching young people and helping them like mm. get through life. Like I, I enjoy that. It's interesting that you say coaching people, young people for the rest of your life. And what's your old thesis? Chief people officer. Yes. So in a sense, not exactly soccer, but... Some things 
are consistent throughout your story that I'm noticing? I, I have learned a lot through sports and through soccer. Mm-hmm. Not everybody gets that opportunity. So it's how can I share some of that, what I've learned to other people who don't necessarily use sports or soccer as that medium. Yeah. That's great to see that connection come together. So speaking of what soccer's taught you, mm-hmm. you coach now, coach your kids. At a later day, I'd love to hear what kind of soccer dad you are, what kind of coach dad, because <laughs> well, there's I can, the, I can the various you. kinds. I can tell you. It what? is very straightforward. If, if, if I'm there as a parent and a fan, I'm the dad that's like not talking to anybody. Uh, I stand okay. there stoically. Okay. People try to like talk to me. I'm like, hmm, not trying that right now. Okay. Because I'm business. I'm I'm very like I'm introverted naturally, so it takes a lot for me to like get to know people mm-hmm. at a deep level, or just to open up. Right. Even okay. this is like takes a lot of energy out of like not out of me, but takes a lot. No, to, no, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. To share this much. Yeah. So when it comes to watching games and watching my kids play, I'm really trying to watch them. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to have like a side conversation about life or the club or timbers, thorns. No, mm-hmm. just trying to just focus on them. Right. Um, as a coach, I try to be very consistent. As a coach and as a parent, I try to be consistent. I don't get overly excited. I don't get overly pissed off or frustrated. When I talk to the kids and they hear it in my voice, um, they know if I'm disappointed and they mm-hmm. know if I'm like, like, hey, that was that was a great play. Yeah. But I try to keep it consistent so that they don't think of, yeah, I did something amazing. I'm the shit. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you might have made a great pass, but you need to go do it again. Mm-hmm. Or you made a good pass, and they get your ass on defense. Or, mm-hmm. or you scored a goal, but we're still down a goal. Mm. So it's at that level of like, you can't get up too high until the mm-hmm. game's done. Mm-hmm. Just like you can't beat yourself up if you made a mistake, because we all make mistakes. Right. Wow. Okay. That paints it. Did I, did I get it in a... No, I mean, I, I got it. <laughs> I see the kind of dad-coach combination. Mm-hmm. Is that hard for them to transition in between the different roles? That's a good question. I don't... Well, I guess we should ask them, huh? We probably should ask them. Bring them out. Bring the kids out. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've had some pretty deep, deep conversations about yeah. the balance between the two. Because my oldest son has been a part of the game since he's been born. Mm-hmm. I was still playing professionally when he was born. So he had two years of being pulled around in the stadium and being, you know, hanging out with the other, uh, the other parents that obviously weren't on the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a number of years when I was trying to figure out how to be a professional coach, that he was then a part of all of it. And he had a number of years of, like, then being thrown in to saying, hey, like, you are the son of an ex-professional player. Like, here's the yeah. expectation. Mm. The younger one is in a position where we've kind of figured things out, figured out the rhythm and flow of life, balancing sports, school, work, everything else. So he's in a much different spot than the older one was. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, retiring, no one teaches you how to retire. Mm. There's no playbook. And you got to figure out a lot of shit when you retire. It was a pretty, I don't, I, I don't have a midlife crisis now because I went through that when I retired from playing. Okay. Okay. So You had the midlife, you had the mm -hmm. post-professional athlete crisis. If you ask any former athlete the hardest time period, it's that window. Mm. How big is the window? 
depends. I mean, it can be anywhere from <laughs> can be anywhere from a year to you know some guys don't figure it out mm-hmm. because you get so used to having everything being structured around you to show up to be able to play ah. that you don't really know you, you don't know your identity. Hmm. I got a buddy of mine who you know we're a bunch of man babies running out there hmm. because we're always being taken care of. Like we we wow okay where I some see. people graduate from college and they figure it out we never really got that we went from college to then professional with people still taking care of us Mm. so while you're an adult you're not really an adult you're adult in age but in maturity Mm -hmm. you're still and then you get done and now all of a sudden you go from this livelihood that's gone having all these people come out and pay money to watch you cheer for you want you to sign autographs, do this, that, and the other. That's all gone. And now you're in this space having to watch other people come up and do what you did hmm. and not be resentful because they've essentially taken your spot. Yeah. Like I've had young guys who've lived in my house who have literally been brought in to replace me. Hmm. That's something. Yeah. That, I'm sure, creates humility. It like snatches it out of you. You know what I mean? It, it's humility, it's angst, there's anger, there's depression, there's all the emotional spectrum that goes into that. Yeah. And some of that I don't I don't think we as a society and as as, as athletes talk about it enough. Because there real there really is no support network. Like when you're done, you're done. Yeah. But you transitioned when you're done. I did, but it was a hard transition. And I made yeah. a lot of mistakes during that transition. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. What's the biggest thing that if you could if you could just call out one thing that you took with you from that transition into the next chapter of your life, what would that be? Yeah, that is a deep, deep question. I'm out here, Scott. You know what I mean? I got a million of them. I'm only giving <laughs> only giving you a couple <laughs> only an hour's worth. What is one thing that I could take with me? God. I, w- I would say I would, I would need to forgive myself for the mistakes that I'm going to make hmm. and know that it's okay. Hmm. That's good. I think that's everybody. I think that's good. That's a good thing to reflect on, period, because, yeah, those mistakes are going to happen. Did you learn that in the transition? I think I learned that in the transition, after the transition, when I talk about having like an amazing wife and partner, she taught me a lot during that transition. Mm-hmm. My parents taught me a lot during that transition. Like, I was in full display of all of my mistakes that I made. Mm. And the only reason why it's okay is because we, we grow in that area of when we make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I did learn from those mistakes. I, I'm still learning yeah, yeah. from them. Um, but it's the awareness of I'm not perfect or infallible. Infall- can't even speak right now. In- infallible? Infallible. Is that it? Let me know, internet. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> infallible. Infallible. But there is, there is an aura of like, I'm invincible. And then you get humbled real quick. Mm-hmm. Real quick. 
So where do you go after soccer, after professional soccer? Like every other person, you kind of try to keep your foot in the game. So I went mm-hmm. from doing some work in the front office for the Timbers. I was, I was, I'd always done community work while I was playing. So mm-hmm. any type of like charity events, uh, appearances, stuff that had to do with like boys and girls clubs, kids, I'd always volunteer to go do that. And so I parlayed that into the front office. So I was doing uh, brand ambassador work. I was coaching trying to hustle and do, you know, four or five side gigs to, mm-hmm. to keep food on the table. And that made its way into then running a youth club to then being the exec- executive director of that youth club to then going into dealing with some pretty big clubs, leagues uh, around the U.S. and around the, around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, coming out of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, COVID, having a pretty like deep, deep reflecting moment of like, what do I want to do with my life? Mm-hmm. Do I want to keep making, helping to make corporations and certain people billions and millions, like make money? Or do I want to like have an impact or a deeper impact on people and people who need more support than multi, you know, billion dollar corporations? Yeah. So how do you end up at Thesis? I ended up at Thesis in the tail end of my, of my days in the sports marketing world. Uh, I was spending more time focused on building uh, communities and fields for marginalized groups, specifically black and brown communities that don't have mm-hmm. places to play soccer. I was spending more time working with um, black players in the league and supporting them and less about negotiating contracts. Mm-hmm. And while all doing that, focused on internal employee resource groups that were focused on uplifting our community. And so that, randomly, I was speaking to a friend of ours about kind of what I want to do in my career and pivot. And this person was like, Mm -hmm. hey, there's this uh, agency in Portland that's looking to hire a a head of engagement. Head of engagement focused on uh, diversity, equity, inclusion work. Okay. In the agency space. And I was like, oh, okay. Didn't really think twice about it, to be honest. I had mm-hmm. a couple other gigs that were, you know, open to me. A couple other brands that were like, hey, you can work for, work for us, but you got to move to Baltimore. Or you got to go somewhere else. It's like, wow. yeah, yeah, I don't know if I really want to do that. Yeah. You know, it still stays in the same vein of like doing global sports, but not stuff locally. And after sitting down uh, with some folks here and kind of asking around, I was like, All right, I'll take a stab at this and see see what I can do. Mm-hmm. So, okay. and then here we are. I get to try to convince folks like you to come to Portland. Chief people officer. <laughs> no big deal. Easy. <laughs> so, crystal ball time, mm-hmm. right? If you're just like, you swirl the I'm ball swirling. around, okay. right? If you're looking to the future, what mm-hmm. do you foresee yourself moving towards doing as time goes on, goes on, what's the future? What what does the future hold for yourself if you would estimate and project moving forward? That's a great question. This right here is what I would like the future to be. Podcasting? Not podcasting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But watching very, very good—not even good, 
extremely qualified folks that have a vision and seen it come to fruition and having it be in a situation where it's not the chief of whatever or the CBOs, or the COOs, but it's the folks that are actually in the day-to-day work or the folks that are just coming into the space, they're the ones in this chair getting the, the interview. Mm. They're the ones that were unveiling their backstory. So it's an expansion of what you're already doing while also how do we provide a wider funnel or a wider pipeline into these moments and highlighting these stories. Yeah. Well, Scott, I think you're on the way to do that. You even being here, just sharing this story with people, my hope is that people are inspired, encouraged, affirmed. I am affirmed, looking at you, seeing you, knowing your story, knowing more about you, engaging with you, working with you. It gives clarity of like, oh, that's what's possible. Hmm. You know? So I appreciate you sharing your story with me. And even just straight up between you and I, affirming me. You know what I'm saying? Like advocating for me to even be doing this. So I appreciate you very much. I appreciate you. And I would say that's probably the easiest thing, advocating for you. Because the talent's been there since I first met you. So I got to give you props and your flowers, your whole crew, because... This has been an amazing experience, um, but I already, already knew it was there. So the bar was already set, and you've somehow exceeded that bar. It means a lot. Thank you for sharing your story. It means a lot, and my hope is that other people who are watching this and listening to it get to benefit a piece of what I've get to ben- got to benefit of in real life. So thank you for being here, Scott. Thank you all for listening and watching. Peace. You killed it. We've done it. <laughs>